0: taller than I am. So this is grace in action, by the way. I'm up here to read a scripture before Jacob comes up and preaches. Some of you may recall last week, Jacob introduced me as, as the answer to Tay's prayer for an old guy to come to church. So in all due grace, I'm not going to take a shot at Jacob today. I'll be nice. I'll just read the scripture and sit down with my reading glasses. (laughs) So the scripture reading for this morning comes out of Matthew chapter 13, verses 24 through 30. It's a parable. It's the last in the series. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat, and he went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you were pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time... I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds, tie them in bundles to be burned, then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. Jacob, all yours.
1: Thank you, Dane, I won't make a short joke either. I don't know if people would see your face behind the music stand, but that was Dane. The kingdom of heaven is like a good man who parked the van in a good spot, but the evil one came in the night and took it. <laughs> not cool. Really not cool. Nick called me this morning and said, Jacob, I I don't know how to hotwire the van. And I said, well, Nick, I learned a lot in seminary, but we we didn't cover that. In the movies, you always touch the red wire or the blue wire. It, it didn't work, so... The van was stolen this week, kind of a bummer, but God is good, we'll be okay. Uh, As Dane said, we're concluding the series today on the parables. We've been talking for the past uh, nine weeks about uh, the teachings of Jesus, where he taught in stories that uh, were intended to tell some shocking and unexpected truths about God's kingdom. Um, And today, the parable we just heard is a parable about freedom. Um, And it might not seem like it at first. And, in fact, it's going to take most of the message to kind of get to that point. Uh, But I think we'll see that it is a parable parable about freedom. Um, And today kind of marks the the book ends of the series. I I got to start the series uh, 10 weeks ago. We looked at Matthew 13, uh, 10 through 17. The disciples asked Jesus, why do you teach in parables? And he basically says, I teach in parables to confuse you. That's the reason why. And then in Matthew 13, starting at verse 24, uh, as part of the same conversation, he tells this parable to confuse his disciples. So it's kind of a fitting way to end the series. Um, And like I said, I think we'll find that it's a parable of freedom. So first let's pray. Father, I pray that you would just speak to us today. I pray that you would have a word uh, specific to each of us, Uh, God, that even beyond what I say, uh, that you would speak. God, I know that I'm an imperfect messenger, Um, so we ask for your spirit to to intervene and do something um, in each of our hearts today. Uh, Really uh, reveal yourself in a powerful way, God. We pray this in Jesus' name, Amen. All right, so let's uh, let's start with the the meaning of the parable. What's what's going on here? Uh, so just kind of conversationally, there's a, a man who who has a field, and he goes out and sows good seed, um, and then that evening, one of his enemies comes and sows weeds among the good seed. Uh, they both start to grow up together. And the servants come to the master and say, well, first they say, well, didn't you sow good seed? They are kind of asking him, well, did you use the cheap stuff? Like, something's going on here. This isn't good seed. And the master says, the enemy came and did this. So the the servants think, well, we should do something about it. Do you want us to go and, and pick out the weeds? And the master says, no, don't do that. Don't go and pull out the weeds or else you might pull out the wheat also. Um, and then we find out that later on at the, the time of harvest, uh, they'll be separated. The, the wheat will be harvested. The weeds will be put in bundles and, and thrown in the fire. And one of the reasons why this is a good parable to teach on is because uh, the Bible gives us a cheat sheet for uh, this teaching. If we just look a few verses later on in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus actually explains Pretty, pretty precisely what it means. So let me just say kind of what, what Jesus tells us about the meaning of the parable. He says, um, The one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. So that's Jesus. Uh, the field is the world. Uh, the good seed is people of the kingdom of God. The weeds are people of the evil one. Uh, the enemy who sows the weeds is uh, the devil. The harvest is the end of age. And the harvesters are, are God's angels. And uh, in the first week of the series, I said that parables teach us truths, uh, often shocking truths, about God's kingdom and how we relate to it. So let's, let's talk a little bit about uh, these elements. Uh, so, first of all, what does this parable say about God's kingdom? That's kind of the, the point of this parable. It begins, the kingdom of God is like. So we know they're teaching about the nature, Jesus is teaching about the nature of the kingdom of God. Um so what what do we what can we learn about God's kingdom? Um, goods, we know that good seed has been planted. Jesus came and planted good seed. But for now it coexists with bad seed as well. So Jesus came planted good seed but for now it coexists with bad seed as well. So right now there's two kingdoms. There's God's kingdom but there's also the kingdom of the evil one. Um 18th century Pastor and theologian Walter Rauschenbusch famously said, the kingdom is always but coming. So Jesus came, he initiated the kingdom. The kingdom is here right now, but it's in an imperfect state. It hasn't been brought to completion yet. So the kingdom is here, but it's still coming. God's good kingdom has been planted, but at least for now, it has to coexist with the kingdom of the evil one, with the weeds that are there with it. And eventually the time will come... uh, when the the field is made perfect, where God's kingdom is ushered in in a perfect way. But at least for now, we're in this in-between period. We're in a period of waiting where we have no choice but for the two kingdoms to coexist. Uh, What does the parable say about God? It says that God is patient. Uh, God doesn't seem to be in a rush. He's willing to wait until the right time for the harvest. And it also says that God has a plan. He has a specific plan of how things are going to play out. But then the question that is maybe hardest to answer is, what does this parable say about us? what does it say about how we are to relate to God and to his kingdom? And the weird thing about this parable is that even though we have a cheat sheet, Jesus explains almost every single element of the parable except for what in many ways is the most important component. He says nothing about the servant. He doesn't tell us who the servant is or, or what the servant, I mean, I guess we see what the servant is supposed to do, but he doesn't clarify the parable. And we could read this and and maybe make the case that, well, how do we fit into the parable? We, we're just the good seed. That's what we are. We're we're children of the kingdom, Um we're the seeds. I mean, God forbid that we're the weeds. I hope, I hope that's on us, but we could make the case that we're the good seed, and that that's a convenient explanation. That kind of makes it easier for us because then we co- then we become passive observers. We're just we're just there as part of God's kingdom, but we're not active participants in it. So I think that maybe is too easy, and also it, it strikes me that it's it's a it's a conspicuous omission, right? That Jesus doesn't explain the servant to us. It's almost omitted to catch our attention. Like This is a, a key character that we're kind of less left in the dark of. And when I read this parable, the climax, the most important line is what Jesus says to the servant, what the master of the field says to the servant. This line, No, because while you are pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them also. So I can only conclude that the servant was the disciples. The servant, are, the servant is followers of Christ. The servant is us. Anyone who participates in the kingdom of God, that's us. We're the servants. So what does the parable say about how we're supposed to relate to God and his kingdom? It says we do not have permission to pull up the weeds. We don't have permission to do that. It says that regardless of what we want or what we think is best, we're just going to have to wait. It says that we'll actually do damage to the wheat if we try to pull up the weeds prematurely. So does it does this make sense? I'm kind of still speaking in uh, the language of the parable, uh, but I think if if I understand this correctly, I think what the parable is saying is that we have to wait. If we try to be the judge of good and evil right now, if we try to be the judge of who's in and who's out in the kingdom of God, we do more damage then we do good. If our focus is on destroying evil in the world, we're going to do damage to God's kingdom. We want to pull up the weeds right now, we'll pull up the wheat also. The two kingdoms have to coexist, at least for now. And if we try to pull up the weeds prematurely, we're going to do damage to God's redemptive work. Maybe you've heard... uh, People say, I've I've heard this over the past few years pretty frequently, says that Christians today are becoming known for what they're against and not what they're for. We're more known for what we're against than we are known for what we're for. And there's some research done uh, just a few years ago to test this hypothesis. Uh, The Barna Group, they're a respected uh, research firm. They did a a three-year study. They conducted surveys. They did interviews with people and really focused especially on young people outside of the church. So they tested this hypothesis. What what are Christians known for? And the news is not good. Uh, nine out of the top 12 uh, descriptors of Christians today were negative. Nine of the 12 were negative things about Christianity. Eighty-five percent of the people surveyed um, said that Christians were hypocritical. Eighty-seven percent think that were judgmental. And ninety-one percent, almost every single person they surveyed, said that Christians are anti-homosexual. That's that's what we're becoming known for. And this is this is a problem plaguing the church, right? People are leaving the church because of these perceptions. If we try to focus on pulling up the weeds now, we do damage to the wheat also. That's why Jesus says don't pull up the weeds. Don't pull up the weeds yet. I had a friend uh, back in high school. His name is Dave Farmer. Uh, hopefully, Dave is not listening to this podcast. I apologize. I'm not changing the name for protection of identity. Um, Dave was interested in the Christian faith. He started coming to our, our youth group. I was part of a, a youth group called Young Life. It was very evangelistic, and uh, it's great. It's great for most of us. But he's he's kind of testing the waters and seeing who Jesus is and what Jesus is about and I guess you could say still living in both kingdoms, testing out the kingdom of God, also still part of the the kingdom of this world. And one of my good friends said, this isn't right. He wrote a letter to Dave. It was like five pages long, five pages. And here are all the things that you're doing right now that are excluding you from God's kingdom. All these bad things, these sin Sins in your life, and you know we're naive high schoolers. All of us signed it. Every single person, five-page letter, and we kind of present it to Dave, thinking like, "All right, this is the answer." And I mean, we can guess what happened, right? Like, it's possible. It's possible that he could have read that letter and say, "Oh my gosh, they're right. They're right. I need to repent and accept Christ and fully devote myself to the kingdom." But that's not what happened, right? I mean, we can guess it, right? He he read this and was angry. He was offended and. He left. He never came back. That was the last time we ever saw Dave Farmer. And that's what happens when we try to pick the weeds out. We end up destroying the wheat also. When all we focus on is what not to do, what's wrong, what's immoral, what's sinful, really we're presenting a false gospel. And that's kind of scary, but theologically we're presenting a false gospel we're preaching a gospel of moralism, of piety, of legalism, instead of a gospel of God's grace. Instead of grace, it becomes about personal holiness. And this is this is maybe a little bit of a tangent, but um, I want to just talk for a minute about the difference between a, a holiness mindset and a grace mindset. Uh, and it's a tangent, but I think it will maybe help us understand this need that we feel um, to do do the weeding right now. So what's the difference between a holiness mindset and a grace mindset? Well, holiness is, by necessity, isolationist. Stay away from sin at all costs. Sin will make us dirty. It will contaminate us. But in a grace mindset, there's no fear of sin. In a grace mindset, we can interact freely with anyone we want because we don't have to have a fear of being contaminated. In a a holiness mindset, behavior is supremely important because it's hard to achieve forgiveness. Once we're made dirty, it's very hard to get clean. But in a grace mindset, faith is much more important than behavior because our righteousness isn't of our own doing. Forgiveness is possible because ultimate victory has already been achieved. Sin is washed away. God has won In a holiness mindset, we pay the price to be clean. It's a personal sacrifice. It's a personal discipline. We pay the price. In a grace mindset, the price has already been paid for us. In a holiness mindset, it leads almost inevitably to staunch piety and oppressive religious regulations. But in a grace mindset, there's joy. And the end goal of a holiness mindset is bondage. Whereas the end goal of a grace mindset is freedom. And one more tangent. I, I, want, I thought about excluding this, but it, it just really is on my heart this week. There's this irony of kind of our perception of um, the Old and New Testament, right? Like, as Christians, you think the Old Testament, uh, the Jewish people, the Israelites, back then it was legalism. You know, it was the law, and that was all that was important. But now that we're Christians, now that like Jesus is here, it's grace. All we need is grace. But here's here's the irony that struck me this week. Is in the Old Testament, yes, they were under the law, but look at the heroes of the faith. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, thoroughly flawed people, sinful, mistake-ridden people. Those are the heroes of the Old Testament. But look at Christianity. There's this sense that, you know, if we sinned before we became Christians, that's kind of cool. That's like edgy. You know, we have a story. But then once you become a Christian, no more sin. You have to be perfect. That that part of you is over. And that's a lie, right? I mean, we've almost flipped it on its head where grace is embraced in the Old Testament, but legalism is required in the New. It's a false gospel. That's not what Jesus is saying. And I think this parable helps us to see that at least a little bit. All right, so just to recap, kind of bring it up to speed what we've talked about so far. We're in the in-between period where God has initiated his kingdom. The good seed has been planted, but it's a time of waiting. Right now, it coexists with the kingdom of the evil one. God allows that, at least for the time being. But God has a plan to make things right. The time is, isn't is yet now, but There is a plan. And in the meantime, God is very specifically telling us, do not pull up the weeds. Do not pull up the weeds or you might destroy the wheat with it also. You'll do more harm than good. That's kind of where we've gone so far. I do want to talk for just a minute about what this parable does not say. Because I think we can easily take this and run too far with it. The parable is not saying that there's no such thing as right and wrong. Clearly, it's not saying that. It's not saying that sin is no big deal. The parable even says that at some point, the weeds are going to be thrown into the fire. Sin is still a big deal. It does not mean that we can't have a definitive stance on moral issues. It doesn't mean that we just stop talking to our kids about sin. It doesn't mean those things. And it certainly doesn't mean that we can become passive. It absolutely does not mean that the point of this parable is for us to just do nothing. There are certain evils and injustices in the world that God cares too much about. God wants us to do something about certain evils and injustices in the world. Sex trafficking. God is not indifferent about sex trafficking. Murder, hatred, bigotry, oppression. God isn't indifferent about these things. He cares about them. So how do we apply this parable in the face of undeniable evil without violating the command to not pull up the weeds? I think we just need to do something constructive rather than destructive. We need to think about how can we advance the kingdom of God rather than trying to uproot the weeds and throw them in the fire before the due time. So what's the difference? What is destructive behavior? It, it hurts me to say this, but this is, this is true. Destructive behavior is Christians on the picket lines or showing up at a funeral saying, God hates fags. That, that's destructive behavior. Um, queers are going to hell. For Christians to say that, I mean, no one, no one sees that and says, that's good news. Nobody sees that and says, I, I want that for myself. That's destructive behavior that hurts the kingdom of God. So, what's constructive behavior? Um, Maybe instead of picketing an abortion clinic, adopt a kid, become a foster parent, volunteer at a clinic that offers alternatives to abortion. Things that advance the kingdom of God rather than focusing on destroying the evil that God is allowing to coexist, at least for now. We're not supposed to be passive observers which is to advance kingdom values. And to use um, the language of this parable, if you think about it, once the servants found out that there were weeds in the field, they didn't just kind of like throw up their hand and say, all right, well, we tried. I mean, there's always next year. They didn't neglect the field and just let everything die. They still did everything they could to reap a good harvest. They watered the field. They Toiled the earth. I don't what do farmers do? I don't know. They they did that stuff that farmers do. Because they knew that there could still be a good crop. Yes, the weeds are growing up with the wheat, but they knew that at the time of harvest they would be separated. At the time of harvest, there would still be wheat, and the weeds would be separated and thrown into the fire. They did everything they could to advance the kingdom, even though the kingdom of the evil one was there alongside it. So really all this should be incredibly liberating for us. I told you, it's going to take a little time to get there, but this should be liberating. This should bring us freedom. We have freedom in this parable because it frees us from having to be the moral police for the entire world. It frees us from having to be the one declaring ultimate good and evil for the entire world. Uh, even the Apostle Paul says in First Corinthians, he says, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? What business is it of mine? This parable frees us from having to be the moral police for the whole world. It also frees us from the need to be perfect. It frees us to say, I'm also a sinful person. Because if, if we really want to be judged, if we think that we can be judged, we better be perfect. We have no credibility to make judgment on anyone else unless we ourselves are perfect that becomes a standard if you make yourself judge so this parable gives us freedom from perfectionism it frees us to say i am also a sinful person and it's a command it's not it's not just a, a suggestion it's a command that god is giving us but it's not a command that puts a burden on us it's a command that gives us freedom it liberates us And then the biggest freedom, really, that this gives us is it frees us from having to do God's job for him. It frees us from being the ultimate judge. That's a responsibility that only God has. This parable frees us from doing God's job. God is the only judge. He's the only one qualified to make final judgments. And There's no way. There's no way that we could be adequate judges. We don't know enough about people. We don't know enough about God's kingdom. We don't know enough about God's timing or purposes. There's no way we could be a good judge. God frees us from the burden of being ultimate judge. No one should want that responsibility. It belongs to God, and we're free from it. Let God do what his job is, and we'll feel free from it. And it's easy. In some ways, it's easy for us to have that freedom because God is a good judge. God is a good judge, and he's good in two ways. Number one, he's good because he's an accurate judge. He's a lot more accurate than any of us could be. God sees beyond the physical appearances. God can gaze into our souls, into our hearts, into our minds. Ecclesiastes uh, 12.14 says, For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. God sees the hidden things. He's a good judge because he's accurate. He knows exactly what's going on. He knows us even better than we know ourselves. And one thing that the parables remind us of is that we're always surprised. We're shocked about who's in and who's out. And for those of us who are here today who who are Christians, who uh, know that we're children of the kingdom um god's accuracy and judgment should be scary for us uh, matthew 7 says not everyone who says lord lord will enter the kingdom of god you say well didn't we did we not prophesy in your name did we not drive out demons in your name didn't we perform miracles in your name he says you didn't know me you never knew me we can't be a good judge only god is an accurate judge and then the other reason why God is a good judge, even more important, because God is a merciful judge. He's a good judge because he's a merciful judge. All of us were once weeds. All of us were children of the evil one until Jesus Christ redeemed us. God is the only judge because he's He's a good judge because he's a merciful judge. God is, God is the... God's the only one who has the right to condemn. He's the only one who is entitled to condemn, but he's a good judge. He's a merciful judge. And the grace that God pours out on us should melt away any desire we have to condemn the sin in others. The, The wheat, that was us. That, to some extent, is us today. We're no better than the weeds apart from Christ. Romans says where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Jesus Christ is a good judge because he took the punishment upon himself. That's the only reason why any of us are fit to be called children of the kingdom. In conclusion, we can try to pull up the weeds now. We can... Claim the position of ultimate arbiter of who's in and who's out. We can try to claim that role of ultimate judge. But in the end, we're going to destroy the wheat. We're going to do more harm than good. Or we can wait patiently. We can work the field. We can help the harvest. We can trust that we serve a good judge who is both accurate and merciful. Leave the weeds be. And let Christ grow the harvest. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you're a good judge. We thank you that you can peer into our hearts right now. You see all the hidden sin, you see all the dirt. Things that we're even scared to face ourselves—you you know them. But you're a merciful judge. In an instant, you can turn wheat—you can turn weeds into wheat. Uh, you can redeem us. You can heal us. Uh, you can turn us into children of the kingdom. We thank you, God. Please free us from this unhealthy desire to be final judges. Uh, free us from. An obsession of uh, policing morality, um, wanting to throw sin into the fire now. Just let us trust your plan. Let us believe that ultimate victory has been achieved already and that in your timing it will happen just as you planned it. Um, God, we don't want to be passive, we want to advance your kingdom. Uh, we want to do good in your field. We want to help the wheat grow. Uh, help us to do that, God. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.